Hey everybody, it's Father Edward Looney here, the host of How They Love Mary. When I was a teenager, I read True Devotion to Mary by St. Louis de Montfort. And when I say read, I mean, I read the words on the page, but I didn't understand every word he was trying to say. As a priest and a Marian theologian, many people have asked me to clarify the teachings of St. Louis de Montfort from True Devotion to Mary. I'm happy to share that I've released a new book with Ave Maria Press, called Behold the Handmaid of the Lord, a 10-day personal retreat with St. Louis de Montfort's True Devotion to Mary. This book explains the basic teachings of this great Marian saint and writer and helps us to understand what he's trying to teach and to know the person of Mary better. Before you consecrate yourself to Jesus through Mary with St. Louis de Montfort's method, Learn his theology with this new book. You can buy it at AveMariaPress.com. And when you do so, you'll save when you use the code BEHOLD at checkout. Hello, my name is Father Edward Looney, and you're listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary, a podcast that I hope will either be the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. You heard it last week on the show with Stephanie Lansem that I said I saw something she posted on social media, and I wanted to talk about it. This is a lot of times how I get some of the guests that I look for and want to interview. Something I see posted makes me say, I want to talk more about this topic with that individual. Now, today's guest is Dr. Erica Kidd, and she gave a presentation recently on Mary's Other Yes at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. Now, the backstory is that I saw this post about Mary's Other Yes, and I thought for sure that I had saved it in my little for later file on Facebook. I thought maybe I screenshot it because I said, this is something I want to talk about. Mary's Other Yes. What does the author mean by this? I didn't remember if it was a blog post, so here I am on Google putting in Mary's other yes, trying to find a post about it. Couldn't find anything. But just a week or two ago, I saw the little ad again for Mary's other yes, a little online event, a virtual presentation she gave. And I said, okay, I'm going to reach out. We're going to try to see if she wants to have this conversation. And Dr. Erica Kidd graciously said yes and is with us today to talk about Mary's other yes and her own devotion to Mary. She is an associate professor of Catholic studies and the director of the graduate program in Catholic studies at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. She studied philosophy, Latin, and great texts at Augustine College and Baylor University and received her PhD in philosophy from Villanova University. I actually was a student just for one semester at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul while I was a seminarian at SJV Seminary. I chose after just one semester right out of high school to leave seminary. Never thought I would become a priest, wanted to be a politician, but God called me back to the seminary and I studied elsewhere. So I know the campus quite well and grateful to have Dr. Kidd on today. So thanks for joining me. 
Yeah, thank you so much, Father Looney. I am so grateful for the opportunity. It's a great privilege to be here. Um, and I think you dodged a bullet with avoiding being the politician. I think a priest was a better choice. <laughs> well, thanks for that. And yeah, I was very <laughs> familiar with the Catholic Studies program there at the University of St. Thomas. A lot of the seminarians would double major in philosophy and Catholic studies. And so uh, it also probably, maybe I shouldn't say this, has the reputation of being an orthodox program of faithful to the magisterium, whereas maybe the Department of Theology or Religious Studies might not be able to claim that. So um, we were talking just a little bit beforehand that you teach a class on Mary for the Catholic Studies program, uh, and that's really where this Mary's Other Yes came about, so we'll be talking about that a little bit later. But I guess I'm first interested in knowing how you first got to know the Blessed Virgin Mary. Yeah, um, great, great question. So I first got to know Mary by accident. I was raised evangelical Protestant, and my husband and I, uh, we got married fairly young, and we were looking, we were both Protestant, and we were looking for a convenient date to have our wedding. Uh and it just happened to work that August 15th was a really convenient date. So we put that on the calendar. We got married. Um, we were married using an Anglican liturgy, not a lot of thought for Catholicism. And within a year, we were Catholic. <laughs> so just getting married on the Feast of the Assumption, it's like Mary hooked us and then started reeling us in. And um, so I think, you know, a big part of the reason that I'm even Catholic is Mary um, and Mary's intercession for sure. A few months, uh, yeah, a few months after we got married, we were at Notre Dame, and we were, I mean, I should give a little more background. We were, my husband and I were both raised Protestant, but we were getting a kind of education that was making it hard for us to remain Protestant, right? We were learning a little bit about the history of the church. We were learning that there had been Christians before Martin Luther. We were starting to think that some of our um, beliefs about sola scriptura and um, sola fides were a little bit mistaken. And so, so anyway, there was that kind of background. But, but one thing that was really pivotal for us was going to that grotto at Notre Dame. Everyone said, you got to see this, even if you're Protestant, it's so beautiful and interesting to look at. And so my husband and I, newly married, went to the grotto just to see what it was about. And there was a young couple there obviously Catholic couple students at the university and they were kneeling. Uh, I'm sure you've been to the grotto. It's this beautiful space. Mary is sort of up, up above in the stonework and then down below there are all these candles. And this couple um, knelt down and prayed together. And honest to God, I thought they might get struck by lightning because, you know, it's idolatrous. I thought as a Protestant to be kneeling down in front of Mary lighting candles, like what are you doing praying to Mary? And they weren't struck by lightning um, as obviously. And so they prayed, they left. And then my husband and I thought, well, maybe we should try this. Like, what could it really hurt? And so we knelt down and prayed and, um, and it was really the first time that I understood why God had given me a body and what it might mean to worship him with my body. And so it was really kind of a turning point in my own conversion. And actually, my husband walked away from the grotto and found the first priest he could and said, hey, I want to be a Catholic, make me a Catholic. And the priest said no, um, because he thought, like, you need to think about this a little bit more and pray about it a little bit more. So that was kind of a couple of our first 
encounters with Mary, these these funny little experiences that we hadn't prayed. Obviously, they were um, providentially, or we hadn't planned. They were providentially ordained, um, but she just started drawing us in. So I guess about a year later, we had been doing more reading, learning more about the tradition, and we started taking instruction in preparation for reception into the church because we thought, well, uh, the Catholic Church seems like a serious option here. Let's learn a little bit more about it. And when we as Protestants started reading the Catechism of the Catholic Church, we were just shocked to find how sane and good it was. You know, we had been raised a little bit with like the specter of Catholicism, like it's kind of dangerous. They they are idolatrous. All these um, unfair rumors about the church. And so we we read the whole catechism through, and we said to this Jesuit priest who was instructing us, we said, look, we basically agree with all of this, except um, the dogmas of the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption, because those just seem made up. And he was a really clever guy. I'm so grateful to him, Father Timothy Vavrick, um, down in Waco, Texas. And he kind of talked us through why uh, these doctrines made sense. And so we got to the point where we thought, okay, fine, those aren't real obstacles. The church is right about everything else. And so the church has these two kind of quirky views about Mary, but I think we can affirm that they're acceptable and they're not dangerous. So I would say when we became Catholic, um, and this was towards the end of our undergraduate, right at the end of our undergraduate um, time, when we became Catholic, we thought, yeah, okay, fine. Mary's fine. (laughs) She's not dangerous. She's not bad, um, but she's fine. So that was kind of how we started off our life as Catholics, was just thinking that Mary was was not too much of a problem, which is probably not enough to get invited onto a podcast to talk about how much you love Mary, but that's kind of where things started off for us. It's interesting you use the word dangerous, or she wasn't dangerous, that is. And uh, oftentimes when I talk about Marian devotion, I just did this on a XM show uh, that I did with Sister Maria Pappas. Uh, she said, well, what would you tell a Protestant about Mary? Or if they picked up your new book, mm-hmm. what should their takeaway be? And I, I always say that the most compelling thing for me about Marian devotion is that people have done it throughout history. They've gone to a shrine, they've prayed for a healing, they've left their crutches behind because by Mary's prayers they were healed at that place, and it just seems to have worked. And so so when you say it's not dangerous, that's kind of what it evokes in my mind that, well, so many people have done this, and it's been good for them, so it could be good for me too. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think I would also add, you know... <laughs> It's sort of a simple point, but but Mary's whole point is to point us to Christ, right? I mean, what does Mary do that makes her so special? She, well, lots of things, but but she gives birth to Christ. And so apart from Christ, and everything she does is meant to glorify Christ. So, you know, even in these texts that are really meant to emphasize, we've been reading some um, some older lives of the Virgin, extra canonical, but just really interesting texts. Um, even in these texts that are very concerned to emphasize her queenship, or very concerned to emphasize how distinctive she is, the whole reason that she's distinctive, the whole reason that she matters is because she points us to Christ. Um, and so I think even as a Protestant, I just didn't really understand that distinction, that Catholics weren't worshiping Mary. They didn't think that Mary had, you know, that Mary was a second God or another member of the Trinity, um, but that she really is the handmaid of the Lord, as Scripture tells us. 
I'd be very interested to know, as you mentioned, the extra canonical texts about Mary's life that you've read. Uh, would one of them be uh, The Mystical City of God by Venerable Maria of Agreda, by chance? No, I haven't read that one yet. I'm writing it down. Okay, sure. Well, it's a four-volume set, so it's like it's, oh, wow. it's okay. almost 2,000 pages. You probably don't want to read it. There is a condensed version and an abridged version or whatever, but uh, actually uh, next week, the following week after this episode, releases, I'm doing a little promo for a new podcast I'm doing, Reading the Mystical City of God in a Year. So that's the only reason I asked, because I was oh. going to see if you had any thoughts or reactions uh, to it. So anyways... Um, but yeah, wonderful. Now, okay, I will definitely look for that. So, uh, you talk about Mary and how you came to know Mary, especially as a couple, as a husband and wife, praying at the grotto at Lourdes, and a very beautiful grotto there. And you have a very beautiful Mary grotto as well at the University of St. Yeah. Thomas. She's a very tall, towering statue of Our Lady uh, behind the church. Yeah. So then, you and your husband form this family. So, how does Mary? show up or be integrated into your family life then? Yeah. Yeah. So, so many ways um, and so many ways that I really wouldn't have anticipated at the beginning. Um, So the first, maybe the first major thing that happened to really draw my attention to Mary um, was when my husband ended up needing to have really major surgery and um, it, it ended up being scheduled kind of on an emergency basis. And they said, all right, look, we've scheduled your husband's surgery for Friday the 13th. And even as a not suspicious person, <laughs> I kind of thought like, oh, really? We're going to do a you know, 15, 16-hour surgery on Friday the 13th? And then I realized um, that it was May 13th. It was the Feast of Our Lady of Fatima. And so um, actually it was a friend who pointed that out to me because I was so you know, sort of so worried about what was going to happen. And so I thought, okay, well, then I'm just going to entrust him to Mary. And so the surgery ended up going on much longer than they expected. And um, he came out of the surgery and they had told us that this was a risk going in. But when he came out of the surgery and came out of anesthesia and everything in the ICU, um, his legs were totally paralyzed. And so, you know, they had said it was like a 5% chance. So you never take it seriously when they say there's a 5% chance. And so, um, and so we just started praying because what could we do? And, um, and everyone was kind of preparing us and saying, you know, it's, it, with the leg paralysis and complications, it's not even clear that he'll ultimately make it. Um, and by the end of that day, by the grace of God, my husband was able to start wiggle one, wiggling one toe. And the doctors were totally shocked. They said, you know, they don't do a lot of this particular kind of surgery, but they said, this is just really astonishing. Um, It's maybe almost miraculous that he's able to start moving again. And then slowly, um, he was actually able to recover the full use of his legs um, so that he was able to walk again. And so that just, um, I don't even know what to say, but that just really stood out to me as a time when Mary was looking out for us and um, caring for us and sustaining us. So that was kind of the first big thing. And that was probably a time where I started thinking, all right, maybe I'm going to pay a little bit more attention (laughs) and maybe not even for the best reasons, but like, she's powerful. She's kind of, um, I hesitate to use the word, but like, she's kind of useful to have in your arsenal. So I'm going to ask her for things. 
Um, so I started praying the rosary a little bit more, and we continued on with another um, about a decade of marriage. And then our first son was born, which was a bit of a shock to us to have a son after 10 years of marriage. We just thought that wasn't going to happen. And then two years after that, we conceived a second child, and so we were just overjoyed. And then at about 40 weeks gestation, um, I realized that the baby just wasn't moving enough. And so I went into the midwife, and it turned out that the baby had died at just about 40 weeks, and he had died before he was born, which is, I mean, you know, it, it's it's one of the worst things that can happen to a person. And at the time, you know, with this baby still in my womb, I just thought, I cannot possibly do this. I cannot possibly survive the next day, let alone survive the next year or year after year um, with this with this baby that our family was so looking forward to, this little brother, John Walter, that our family was so looking forward to. And uh, one thing that came out of that, well, so the first thing was, you know, I, I was just like saying to my husband, like, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. And he said, your job, your job right now is to cradle our dead son like Mary cradled Jesus. Mm. That's your job. And I thought, okay, <laughs> if if this is what Mary did, then this is what I will do too. And and I, I just, it's hard to overstate it, but I would not have made it through those next few years mourning the loss of that little baby without Mary. And I think it's kind of interesting because, you know, my husband and I are both trained as philosophers. That's what my doctorate is in, in philosophy. And we have read a lot of books about, um, you know, explaining the works of God to men, a lot of, um, a lot of, accounts of suffering and why God allows suffering. And I think it's fair to say that none of that um, reading was particularly helpful to me at the time of losing my son, even though, you know, I very much consider myself an intellectual. (laughs) What was really consoling to me was the life in person of Mary, because I thought, I'm just, I'm entering her life. I'm in a certain way living her life. I'm living her sorrow. And I remember saying to God at that time, um, (laughs) how could you do this? How could you, how could you make me wait so long for children? Like, why even give me this child if you're just going to take the child away from me? And God mm. said to me so clearly, this is what I did to, to the mother of Jesus, right? This is what I gave Mary. And don't you dare think, I'm sort of putting words in God's mouth, but, but don't you dare think that um, this happened through my indifference or that it was an oversight, or that it was an accident, or that I don't love you, or that I didn't think your baby was beautiful and would bring so much joy. It's none of that. None of this happened through my indifference. This is the very gift, and I hesitate to use that word, but this is the very gift that I gave the mother of God. And so, you know, my process over the last six years, um, since that baby died is just to try to learn her hope and and to try to learn um, not just to be resigned <laughs> to the will of God, but also to learn to welcome it. Um, but again, not in this kind of abstract propositional way, <laughs> but just in the sense of I look at her life, I see what she's done, and I say, well, okay, that's what I'm going to do too. I'm going to try to enter into her life in this way. 
And looking at Mary's life then can kind of be this healing way, a medicinal way, kind of restoring, as you said, hope mm-hmm. and, and trying to find meaning yeah. in this. And so there is something to be said about identifying with Mary. And for you, you had that very close connection yeah. uh, in that loss. Did Mary in prayer yeah. then help to facilitate healing as well? Yeah, absolutely. So we started this um, practice. Our, our son is buried at a Catholic cemetery about 10 minutes from our home, and we started this practice of going to the cemetery every Saturday where he's buried to eat a donut <laughs> to kind of celebrate his life. And on his way there, we thought, well, it'd be nice to pray a rosary. So we pray a rosary on the way there and back. We take kind of a winding way, so it takes the whole rosary to get there. And because we were always going on Saturdays, we were praying the Joyful Mysteries. And so uh, the Annunciation, the Visitation, the Nativity, Assumption, Coronation. And as we were, as I, especially as I was praying those rosaries, they became, uh, those mysteries, they became a way for me to, well, do a couple things. I mean, one, uh, it was just sort of therapeutic to think over those experiences in Mary's life and my own life. So to think about Mary's joy over her pregnancy and think about my joy over my second pregnancy and all that it entailed. And to think about Jesus' birth and then also to think about my own quite traumatic experience of birth. And so just, you know, it's so revisiting those joyous and and difficult experiences in the presence of Mary was really healing to me. Um, and, and then, of course, you know, ending with Mary's coronation, assumption and coronation and thinking about the promise of heaven and thinking about our little boy up in heaven and Mary caring for him as a mother in heaven, being able to hold him in a way that I'm not able to right now. Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was it was tremendously healing um, in all kinds of ways. You know, some of that psychological trauma, some of the wounds in my relationship with the Lord, um, really drawing me closer to both both the Lord and his mother. So Jesus, as he's born on Christmas Day, he really is born to die. He's born for that moment of Calvary in which the world will be reconciled and redeemed. And during the holidays, so you just related a story of grief, that of loss. And so I think that people during Advent, as we approach Christmas, that that we have to make sense of grief as well. And so um, how can Advent then, our celebration of Advent, when there is grief or darkness or whatever, how can that story of Christ's birth bring light in the midst of this darkness? Yeah. Yeah, it's such a great question. Um, I always feel funny because when I end up talking about Advent, I often end up talking about suffering in darkness. And first I started to, at first I felt a little guilty about it, you know, like, oh, it should be cheerful and we should be getting ready for Christmas and it should be all bells and tinsel. Um, But I think especially for people who have experienced loss, Advent is an excruciating time. Um, You know, I, I think that uh, joy and sorrow are multipliers. And so when we are asked to really enter into joy, even when we are entering into joy, often that sorrow reasserts itself. You know, oh, I wish that parent were here. Or I wish that child were here. Or I wish that relationship were healed as we're trying to celebrate the season. 
And one thing that I find so consoling about Advent is it is the season of the not yet. It is the season of anticipation. So, you know, when we're in the Northern Hemisphere, it turns out that Advent is a time of great darkness, right? It's getting dark very early. And um, Carol Hauslander has a lovely little book. Everyone I've given to, given it to loves it, called The Read of God. And she, it's an Advent meditation. And she talks about this darkness in a couple of different ways. She says, you know, in darkness, we are, I mean, in Advent, we are waiting for the light. We are waiting in expectation of Christ, the light of the world. We're getting ready for Christmas. We're also anticipating Christ's second coming. But as we wait for that light, it's important to notice the the reality of darkness. And she describes this in at least two senses. One is things are dark for us in this present world. The whole, the whole year long, but we can focus on it, especially in Advent. Things are dark for us in that there's much about the future that we just don't know, right? We don't know what God's going to call us to, what job, if we're going to move, if we're going to meet someone new, you know, there's just a lot we don't know. And so, um, she says we can take comfort and consolation from Mary, who's gestating this baby. And, you know, she has some promises. She has some sense of what's coming. She knows it's really big. Um, But she doesn't know everything about how it's going to play out. She doesn't get, you know, a daily itinerary from God saying, all right, here's how I want you to relate to this child, or here's what's going to happen, or, you know, just heads up, here's what's going to happen in 33 years, or, you know, any of this. So, so there's a lot of um, just kind of a darkness of unknowing, which isn't a bad darkness, but it's something that um, we really have to, to, to learn to trust the Lord in, and I think Mary gives us an example. And then also, um, in Advent, I think we, we reckon with, as I mentioned at the beginning, just the darkness of sin, that Christ has brought salvation to the world, and yet in our own individual lives, as we think about the second coming, we have to be honest with and and reckon with the sin in our lives. And so that's why, you know, it's so perfect that Advent is a penitential season, right? That we are um, acknowledging our sin, we are waiting in hope, but also being serious about um, making sacrifices and doing penance and and um, preparing ourselves for a second coming. You know, if, if Christ is coming again, it our top priority isn't making sure we've got all the stocking stuffers purchased and all the cookies made, right? It's it's dealing seriously with sin in our life and taking that seriously. Um, so, yeah, I think those are those are good things to to focus on in this Advent season. And one of the things too, as we focus on Mary during Advent, and this was something I said in my uh, homily for the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, and actually a few people texted me afterwards and said, I'm still thinking about what you said. And I said that, well, for us, we have four weeks of Advent, but Mary had nine months of Advent. And of course, I wasn't trying yeah. to say that the Immaculate Conception is the birth of Jesus or his conception or anything like that. But but my point was, because obviously that's not what the Immaculate Conception is, but my point was that God prepared Mary from the very moment of her conception to be the mother mm-hmm. of the Savior, and he continued to prepare mm-hmm. her. Um for example, one of the 
One of the feasts we have in the church on November 21st is the presentation of Mary in the temple. So this idea that maybe Mary was there in the temple and she was learning from the elders, she was hearing the prophecies, God was preparing her to be the mother of the Savior. God prepared her by giving her Joseph to be her protector and provider. And so God was preparing her and she had those nine months then to prepare for Christmas Day, in which she would see Christ the Lord laid in the manger and all of these other people coming to adore him. So, but this all began with her yes, which brings me to this very point that I saw and I wanted to talk with you about after seeing your event that you were having in St. Paul was that Mary says, yes, we call this her fiat. Let it be done to me according to your word. And so that's her first yes, her yes to the angel saying, I will be the mother of the Savior. Use me, God, I want what you want for my life. But there are other yeses then in her life. And so Mary's other yes was the title of your presentation. And I was curious what your take on her other yes might be. Yeah, sure. Um, So I I love talking about, I've done a fair bit of writing about um, in a scholarly way about Mary's yes at the Annunciation. And it's, it's such a fun yes to focus on, right? I mean, we can acknowledge the difficulties and, you know, uh, of the kind of position that it put her in is kind of strange in certain ways. But ultimately, what Mary wanted was what every Jewish woman wanted, which was to give birth to the Savior, right? That's what they, that's what all Jewish women were looking for, hoping for, waiting for. And, you know, at that yes, again, strange and difficult as it might be, that yes at the Annunciation, um, what Mary gets at the end of it is a baby, which is lovely and sweet and just, you know, totally charming. And so I think that's that's a yes. I mean, when we say Mary's yes, that's the yes we typically think of. Uh, Adrian von Speyer, this, she's a Swiss mystic, really prolific uh, writer. She She says, she reminds us, that it's important to remember that Mary's entire life was yes in a certain way. She says we often like to think of, um, you know, the Annunciation as being this, uh, what kind of standout moment. And of course it is, but she says it expresses the entire character of Mary's entire life, that her whole, it wasn't that the Annunciation was the first time Mary had said yes to God. Um, I think Ratzinger says this as well in, oh, it's the best book. Um, Daughter Zion, the best book. It's so hard to read, but so good. Um, he says, you know, Mary, Mary gives an absolute yes to God through her life, and God gives an absolute yes to Mary um, because of who He's made her to be. Um, and so, so I was thinking about, you know, the whole character of Mary's life being a yes, but that's not the specific yes I was thinking of with Mary's other yes. When I started teaching this course on Mary, um, probably the thing that was most surprising to me that came out of that course was the strong, the strong connection the Catholic tradition makes across time between Mary's yes at the Annunciation and her yes at the crucifixion. There's, there's a lot that kind of surrounds it that suggests that these two yeses are meant to be read in parallel. And I didn't even, again, I hadn't even really thought about Mary saying yes at the crucifixion. I had thought about Mary saying, okay, (laughs) or if you insist. Um, but, but this kind of, 
to, to, to say yes in a similar way that she says yes to, I want a baby who's going to be the savior of my people. I thought that was really striking. Um, so then it, I, I guess I can share with you a couple of, a couple of passages that made this stand out to me. So in the, in the, um, in Lumen Gentium, it says that Mary, quote, lovingly consented to the immolation of this victim, which was born of her. And this, I just couldn't believe this, lovingly consented <laughs> yeah. uh, to the death of her son. And again, you know, I've shared a little bit of my story with you. It, I, I couldn't do it. I, I think I would say I couldn't do it. I couldn't lovingly, lovingly consent to the murder of my son. Mm. And yet Mary does. And in doing so, she unites herself with Christ's sacrifice, right? So Christ has made a sacrifice to the Father, and Mary also joins her sacrifice with Christ as she sacrifices her son. She's not clinging to him. She's not holding him back. She's not negotiating with the Father, saying, don't do it. <laughs> you know, let, there's got to be another way. Um, let's figure something out. Um, and there's just this full-throated yes. So I have a passage from Adrian von Speyer here. She says, in thinking about this connection between Mary's first yes at the Annunciation and her second yes at the cross, she says, In obedience to God, Mary gave the first assent to the angel and threw him to the Spirit. Now she gives the new assent to the Son to fulfill the will of the Father who is suffering wholly in the will of the Father. So for Mary, everything is about, about her love of God, about the will of the Father. And then you might ask, like, okay, well, great. She's, she is assenting. She agrees to the will of the Father in each case. But, but that's not the end of the story. The real reason I think that it's interesting to read these two moments in Mary's life in parallel is that in both cases, her yes is fruitful. So I think, you know, one of the reasons we often don't want to give a yes to the Lord is because um, we're worried, we want to give just a bare assent, and we think, okay, we'll sort of white-knuckle through it. Like, okay, fine, I will say yes to the will of the Lord, and it's going to be awful and miserable, and I will make it through it. In both these cases, at the Annunciation and at the Crucifixion, Mary's yes is fruitful. So when she says yes at the Annunciation, she conceives Christ through the Holy Spirit, and Christ is born into the world. She brings new life into the world through the Spirit. And so, too, um, at, the, at, the, um, at the foot of the cross, when she gives her yes, there's a fruitfulness there, too. And I think, you know, there, there's a fruitfulness in all kinds of ways, in the way that Christ's life is being poured out into the world, the way that we're given the Eucharist, but also, most of all, the birth of the Church, right? So mm -hmm. Mary's present at the birth of the Church. There's this fruitfulness that comes out of her, yes. There's the fruitfulness that she becomes the mother of many souls. And, and so that's the, that's the connection or combination that I think is really astonishing. It is so hard for us to imagine that our suffering could be fruitful. And again, I don't want to be, I don't want to be flippant. People often ask me, you know, what should I say to someone who's suffering? Don't tell them that their suffering is going to be fruitful. <laughs> That's just offensive. Um, but, but I think, 
I, you know, I think I think Scripture shows us and tells us, and maybe most of all through the person of Mary, that our suffering really is fruitful. That that's a grace and gift that God gives us. Um, and so when we think about God asking us to make these most tremendous sacrifices, and and asking of Mary the the worst of all sacrifices, right? Not just the death of her son, but the murder of her son, the unjust murder of her son. Um, she trusts that that God knows what He's doing, that He can make even this fruitful, and her yes just doesn't have to be a yes of resignation. So this is a mystery that I have not penetrated. Um, I feel like in a lot of ways I'm speaking out of my depth here, and yet I cling to it because... Um, because Mary is such a consolation in that suffering that we all go through. When I talk about Mary's yes or her fiat uh, at the Annunciation, I always bring out the fact that Mary didn't know what she was saying yes to at that moment. She was yeah. saying, yes, I will be the mother of the Savior. Let it be done to me. Yes, I want God's will for my life. She didn't know that yes was going to lead her to Bethlehem, that her child was going to be born in a stable, placed in a manger, which of course has all of this imagery and significance of the fact of Jesus being the bread of life. But she didn't know that surrounded by animals, the savior of the world was going to be born. She didn't know that she was going to have to flee into Egypt. So now separated from her family in Nazareth or her friends in Nazareth, raising a child in a foreign country. She didn't know what that yes was going to bring about in her life or where it was going to take her to the very point of the foot of the cross. But yet that yes and her continually saying yes is what uh, she as you said, she offers her whole life as a yes to God's will. And I think we can see that partly because of the Immaculate Conception that she doesn't have this, you know, because she's without sin, she always is inclined then to do the will of God. But as you so beautifully bring us then to Calvary and focusing on that yes to suffering as she's there at the foot of the cross, we then have an opportunity to say yes ourselves because from the cross, Jesus says, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took Mary into his home. And so now that's an invitation for all of us, that as we stand with Mary in our suffering, we can say yes too, and we can give our whole life then as a yes uh, to God. And as we say yes to doing the, the will of the Father, well, we know that Mary is our mother, and she's with us and interceding for us and helping us all along the way. Amen. Yes, that's so beautifully put. We say yes to the will of the Father and also make our yes to taking Mary as our mother and seeing just how much her life can can shape our own lives um, and, and give us a sense of what God is asking us to do and give us the tremendous courage that love requires. Well, one of the ways that we continually say yes in our life is obviously to go on different pilgrimages, that maybe we feel a calling by God. Uh, sometimes when people go to like Lourdes or to an apparition site, they'll say, well, Our Lady called you there and you said yes to go. And and obviously when you visit a shrine, there is uh, the grace that God wishes to offer. And um, I'm sure in your own life then you've been able to visit some Marian shrines and said yes to that invitation, perhaps even to experience healing yourself. Have you been to uh, some different shrines dedicated to Our Lady? 
I have, absolutely. And in fact, that is a really important part of my class here in Catholic Studies, that I send my students on pilgrimage. I say, you cannot study Mary in a class without um, having the experience that has been a primary experience of uh, knowing Mary and, and loving Mary throughout history. So I send them on pilgrimage, even if it's just, you know, on their bike over to St. Mary's Basilica in Minneapolis, they, they have to go somewhere. Um, yeah, a couple pilgrimages stand out. Um, first, uh, we ended up in France, uh, really early in our marriage before we had children or anything like that. And so we decided that we would go check out Lourdes. And um, it, <laughs> we were visiting some family members, and they are very staunch atheists. So I would say, and they were our only ride, right? They had to drive us. We didn't have a car. We were in France. Um, it was a little bit, we just didn't have another way of getting there. And so we ended up doing our entire tour of Lourdes with these two atheists kind of chattering away the whole time, like, well, you don't really believe that Bernadette is incorruptible, do you? That's just crazy. That's just the church, <laughs> you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so it, I think it, it ended up being helpful. I don't, I don't know that I had, um, a, a really sublime experience, which of course isn't the only point, right? God can be working in your life without having an experience, but it was, uh, be, again, because I didn't have a huge devotion to Mary at that point, these kind of needling, mocking atheists were good for me because it made me really start to wonder, like, yeah, why is the Catholic Church so into Mary? Why are there these apparitions? Um, why has Mary made such a difference to so many people's life? And it was a little bit like my experience back at the shrine, you know, watching someone else and seeing that what they are doing is meaningful and significant to them, that made me want to try it as well. And so I think more than anything, you know, more than any specific healing or anything that came out of visiting Lourdes, it was this, um, it, it grew my curiosity about why Mary meant so much to so many people. Maybe a more meaningful um, pilgrimage experience has been our visits to the Shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe in La Crosse, Wisconsin, which is just gorgeous. Um, the architect, Duncan Stroik, just did a beautiful job there. And of course, what's been so powerful to me there has been the memorial to the unborn. And again, it's it, it's a, a reminder. Our faith tells us, you know, um, theology matters. The catechism matters. Propositional truths about our faith matter. All these things are essential. And the church gives us beautiful art, beautiful lives of the saints, the life of Mary, all these other things that also help carry us on our way. And so I've just found it so healing to walk, to look at, you know, that statue that they have there of the angel carrying just armfuls of children up to heaven and thinking of my own child mm. being carried up to heaven and, and given into the arms of Mary. Um, and and that Mary knows what it is to love well, and so that when we entrust ourselves and our loved ones into our care, she can never treat us with indifference. You know, a mother, your mother is the one person who's never going to be indifferent to you, and so to be told that Mary is our mother um, gives us so much confidence that we're that we're well cared for and that we're loved. You've shared about the loss of your child uh, several times, and. 
Um, I'm just wondering, you know, as a family, do you ask that child to pray for you, knowing that he's with God? And so, um, do you is that like a, a family custom of devotion? And then maybe secondly, um, sometimes I've heard of this, and maybe this hasn't been an experience, but but you also mentioned you have another child, and so ha- has the infant ever come, you know, as like a teenager or whatever in a dream to to you or to any of your uh, other family, and, and to give you some sort of sense of peace? Yeah, I thank you for asking this. Um, so we have. We have the one child, John Walter, who's in heaven, and then we have two living boys. So one is older and one is younger. Um, and we do absolutely have a custom all the time. St. John Walter, pray for us. Um, and, you know, I think when he died, one thing that I was worried about was that it would be like he never mattered. So it felt like we weren't going to get to have this child in our family life. And as it turns out, he is a huge part of our family life. And I know that he's watching out for both boys, um, you know, who have some challenges of their own, for, for both our living boys who have some challenges of their own. Um, and there have been so many gifts and graces in our lives that I, it's just been clear in various ways that they've come to us as a result of his intercession. And so, um, you know, I felt like God was taking my child away and instead, God has said, no, I'm, I'm giving you a child in a different sense. Your child is safe. You can have full confidence that he's with me. You don't have to have the kind of worry and anxiety that you have. You know, I have a two-year-old right now, so it's like, keep him out of the street. Keep him out of the oven knobs. You know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of stress and anxiety that goes along with, with that. And, and God says, no, this one is safe with me. And he will be your intercessor, your family's particular intercessor. And we have many friends who also ask for his intercession. Um, I would love to have some kind of experience. I really wanted, especially at the beginning, for him to come to me in a dream or something, and he didn't. But I will say, um, when he was born, when I, you know, sort of in labor, I had this um, vision of him, and he was... He was a little boy, like three maybe, and he was wearing a white tunic and he was walking away from me into a great light. Mm-hmm. And as I walked out the door to go to the hospital, I thought to myself, you know, this is a time when I am going to be tempted to lose my joy. And so I just begged God, please don't let us lose our joy you know, you're taking this child from us, but please help us hold on to our joy. And I think through loving Mary, she's shown me how the joy and the sorrow, you know, the grief over this temporary loss can live in conjunction with that joy and in the hope of the resurrection. And so I would say that's that's another gift that she's given to our family. Well, thank you so much for sharing. And I know for people that have lost family members, whether they're infants or even if they lost a husband at a young age, that that your sharing of how you've coped with grief and how Mary has helped you 
and how you can have hope and how you can offer your own yes to God. I know it's going to be helpful uh, to other people as well. So thanks so much for sharing that uh, with me today. Thank you, Father. What a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Now, I'm so uh, as a professor, maybe you've written some books. I'm not sure. I don't know if there's anything you wish to share uh, in terms of if people want to find you, if you have books out there, or if people want to follow along on the Catholic Studies program, they can just look it up on social media, I'm sure. So any, any way people can uh, keep in touch. Yeah, you know, I, I tend to be not very on social media or the internet, but I would really encourage people to check out um, the Catholic Studies program at the University of St. Thomas, where I'm a teacher. We have undergraduate programs and graduate programs, and we, we're not a theology program. We really focus on um, the, the past 2,000 years of Catholic thought and culture, and how that culture um, can shape our sense of vocation today and shape the kinds of careers that we have and the ways we go out into the world. So we, I, you know, teaching is my, my great passion. I do some other writing, but um, it's, you know, more, more in journals and things. So it'd be harder for people to find, but, but we always love to have great students um, who love the Lord and want to come join our community here, learn more about the tradition of the church. Well, that's wonderful. And I thank you for your time. I know that it's the end of the semester, so you probably have oral exams or grading you could be doing. So so thanks for your generosity and sharing about Mary's other yes and saying yes uh, to sharing that with us today. Absolutely. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's show and for all the many ways that you support the podcast. If you want to help out the podcast, be sure to check out Sock Religious. I love their socks. I love their shirts. And so go over to Sock Religious, use the link in the show notes, and buy some holy socks or some holy shirts that you can wear to evangelize your family and your friends. If you also want to support the podcast, I invite you to please share the podcast with your friends or on your social media platforms. Rate or review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't mind, please follow me on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. My handle is at FR Edward Looney. You'll see all of the posts, all of the content that I put out each week by following me there. Thanks so much again for listening today. Know that I am entrusting you to the heart of Mary, asking her to pray for you this day and every day. And if you don't mind, say a prayer for me too. Let us remain united in prayer to Jesus through Mary. God bless.